write that right on the back there. If you don't have a pen, just steal one from a neighbor and then ask them to forgive you. Um, we're going to start with an activity. And this is something that you're going to do internally, in your mind, and your heart, in your spiritual imagination, we'll call it. But then once you kind of experience what we're about to do together, you can feel free to just write down a little note, just a, a, a memory of, of what comes to you as, you as you process through what we're talking about. When you read the scripture, you see that God is often referring to his house. My house will be a house of prayer, the home of righteousness. I go in my father's house, Jesus said, are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, a space for you in the father's house. It's an amazing, amazing expression that God has. And so we see that God inhabits people and places throughout human history. And that God ultimately has a place being prepared for us for all eternity. But I want you, if you would, just to use your creativity. God gave you the same ability that he has to do something that starts with an idea. That's how things happen. Before there are words, there are thoughts. Before there are actions, there are thoughts. Before anything gets done, there's, there's a, an imagination that is going, that is at work. And I want you to use your spiritual imagination to think through this. If God's house, God's home, were here on the earth, where would it be in your mind's eye, and what would it look like? I want you just to stop to think. Because some thoughts might come to you. Would it be in a remote place or in a congested place? Would it be high or low? Would it be big or small? I just want you to think about what God's house would look like here on this earth. What would it look like? Where would it be? Just give you a minute right there. Just If you want to even just really be able to concentrate without being distracted, you can just... Maybe close your eyes for a minute and just kind of, if, if that helps you, just to think about what would God's house look like here on this earth? And where would it be? I'm going to do this with you want to, feel free to write down a, a word that might be memorable for you or a phrase just to kind of remember. And you can do this again if you want. I'm actually kind of surprised by what image came to my mind. Jess, can you just throw that pen to me right there? I just left my pen over there. I'll just throw it here. I'm good, aren't I? <laughs> that was a good catch. Yeah. So. And the second one is, where is God in that house? And what is God doing? You've, you've kind of imagined right now what the house of God might look like, where God might reside here on this earth. 
Now, where would he be in that house? And what would he be doing? Would he be in the living room by the fireplace, sitting down waiting to chat with you? Would he be in the kitchen, cooking up a meal for you? Would he be in a bedroom, making your bed because you're on your way over? Would he be in a study, you know, real busy getting a sermon ready for you? I, I, you know, where, where, would, where would Father God be in that house and what would he be doing? Just go ahead and let yourself think about that for a moment. Are the thoughts that are coming to you surprising? They are to me. I, I didn't do this in advance. I knew we were going to do this, but I'm actually surprised myself the thoughts that are coming. Third thing is, where are you? In juxtaposition, in relation to, in, in reference to where the Father is and what's the, what the Father is doing, where are you in that picture? Are you in the house? Are you just on the outside of the house? Are you knocking? Feeling like no one's answering? Are you, are you in very distant from the house? If you're in the house, are you in the same room? Are you doing the same thing? I mean, just picture right now where you are in that home. series again is the parable of the prodigal father a story of God's scandalous love and, and what we're looking at today is the players the plot and the purpose and I want you to feel free even as I continue to speak now to process even more God's house God's activity where God is in that house and where you are in relation to God I just want to give you the freedom to do that Throughout the time of my, of my sharing with you and throughout the uh, time that we respond and worship today. But I want to go ahead and read this story that we know very familiarly, not as, as the prodigal's father, but as the prodigal son. And it's to be found in the Gospel of Luke in the Bible, chapter 15. If you want to turn there, and I, I do hope you have access to a Bible. If not, um, you know, go ahead and look on with somebody else, whether electronic or print. Um, but we're going to read verse number uh, 11, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to go ahead and, and really begin to scratch the surface today. Uh, we'll, we'll go even more into this story as the weeks unfold, but today will be kind of an overview of really looking at it, but it's still going to be a, a wild ride for us. And I just want to start just by reading uh, the entirety of this story that Jesus gave, and we know more popularly as the story of the prodigal son. Uh, that we've renamed for, for purposes that are, are not clear now, will become clear, I expect, as we go. 
In verse 11 of Luke chapter 15, it says, Jesus told them yet another story. Once a man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, give me my share of the property. So the father divided his property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son packed up everything he owned and left for a foreign country where he wasted all his money in wild living. He had spent everything when a bad famine spread through that whole land. Soon he had nothing to eat. He went to work for the man, for a man in that country, and the man sent him out to take care of his pigs. He would have been glad to eat what the pigs were eating, but no one gave him a thing. Finally, he came to his senses and said, My father's workers have plenty to eat, and here I am, starving to death. I will go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven and against you. I am no longer good enough to be called your son. Treat me like, the, like one of your workers. The younger son got up and started back to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt sorry for him. He ran to his son and hugged him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven and against you. I am no longer good enough to be called your son. But his father said to the servants, Hurry and bring the best clothes and put them on him. Give him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Get the best calf and prepare it so we can eat and celebrate. This son of mine was dead, but has now come back to life. He was lost and has now been found. And they began to celebrate. The older son had been out in the field, but when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants over and asked, what's going on here? The servant answered, your brother has come home safe and sound, and your father ordered us to kill the best calf. The older brother got so angry that he would not even go into the house. His father came out and begged him to go in. But he said to his father, for years I have worked for you like a slave and have always obeyed you, but you have never given me a, a little goat so that I could give a dinner for my friends. This other son of yours wasted your money on prostitutes, and now that he has come home, you ordered the best calf to be killed for his feast. His father replied, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we should be glad to celebrate. Your brother was dead, but he is now alive. He was lost and has now been found. I just want to give a little credit to Don Wilkerson, um, who sent me this um, Bible as a gift. He's a, my, Don Wilkerson and my dad are best friends. and uh, You might know the name, you might not know the name, but he recently did a study Bible. And I got one of the first ones off the press, and he said, the only caveat is I'll give this to you, but you have to tell people about it. And uh, at least tell three people. How many of you uh, count more than three people here? And uh, it's called the Challenge Study Bible Brooklyn Teen Challenge, and it's the uh, common English version that I just read from in case any of you were interested in that. This story over the last, all, all my life, because my dad came to the Lord, my mom came to the Lord, um, both before I was born, and so I was exposed to the teachings of Jesus very early on. What an awesome privilege um, that we should extend to all children, right? 
and I just had that opportunity to hear about Jesus, and I remember being impacted by this story in a very profound way. Later I'll tell about how it really came home to me when I was 16 years old and in, in a most profound way. But what's interesting is in the last maybe three or four years, this story has become paramount of all stories of the Bible for me. I, I, I've come to the place that I believe if these were the only words that we had of Jesus' teaching, I would commit my life to follow him just because of this one story. Now, I wouldn't want this story alone because I love, obviously, we would be lost without Jesus going to the cross. We'd be lost without the resurrection. We understand that his works of healings and salvation are so profound. But just this story alone reveals an image of humanity that humanity doesn't really experience. And it does it for the purpose of not focusing on humanity, but focusing on divinity. This is a revelation, not just of an earthly father, but this is like all of Jesus' parables where he uses earthly things to teach us spiritual realities. And so the father in this story represents God. And in any other religion, in any other philosophy, never is there a revelation of God like this one. It's absolutely profound. It's, it's not just heartwarming, it's life transforming when you get a hold of what's happened in this story. Um, Timothy Keller, and I, I, I'm not going to, um, there's a few different resources I wanted to get myself into in preparation for this series, and this is one of them, and I'll reference others as I go. Some of you might know Timothy Keller, pastor of an amazing church in New York City, uh, Redeemer Church here, and he wrote this book called The Prodigal God, and it's an amazing book, and he just says in the introduction here, I have seen more people encouraged, enlightened, and helped by this passage when I explain the true meaning of it than by any other text. Now the Bible's a big book, as you can see sitting right here. The Bible's got an extensive amount of material. What he's saying is, is that this book above all other, or this story above all others, has done more to help, encourage, and instruct people uh, than any other story that he's ever been able to explain the meaning of to, to them. So we have a profound story, very simple in the telling of it. And, and it's, it, it's over before it starts, but the more that you get under it, the more you just realize profundity is throughout the whole thing. So we're going to look at the players and the plot. And when we look at the players and we see the activities of those players, we see the plot unfolding. One of the players is this one that is called the younger son. And that's the one who's given the name the prodigal son. And we'll get into exactly what that was all about. But this is the younger son who has, man, a lot of chutzpah. You guys know what the new word chutzpah means? It's just like he's, he's really got, you know, just a lot of, like, um, he, he, he's, he's rude to his father. Let's just say that. He goes to his father and essentially he's saying to his father, hey, dad. You're not dying fast enough. I want the inheritance now. I mean, literally, that's what he's saying. He's like, I can't wait for you to die. So give me what, like, I, it's, it's not about relationship for this son. But then we know that the son goes beyond the rejection of the relationship with his father to this really bizarre, just immoral living and lifestyle. He was brought up right, and yet he goes out and he, and he, and he lives wrong and and becomes what, what we would know by definition as a prodigal. I want to read you some of the uh, ways that the word prodigal is defined for us. Reckless, recklessly extravagant, having spent everything, rashly or wastefully extravagant, 
giving or given in abundance, lavish or profuse. One who is given to wasteful luxury or extravagance. A person who spends lavishly or, or squanders money. And this is the way that we can see this young man. It's a, it's a nap title for him to be called the prodigal son. He took all that was given to him and he just wasted it all. He just threw it to the wind. He had momentary, momentary pleasure. The Bible is very honest with us. It tells us that sin is fun. Did you know the Bible says that? The Bible says that sin is fun. Did you know that? It says it this way. The pleasures of sin are for a season, but in the end they lead to death. So the Bible's honest that when we go and we sow our wild oats, or however you would give the expression, in this case he's in a foreign land, living wildly, and all of the things that he's drinking in, the pleasures of this life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of those things are described for us in the Bible. And in the end, what does he have to show for it? Nothing. And that's the dead-end street of sin. And that's why we can't allow sin to remain in our lives. And that's why Jesus died for sin. Because sin destroys self. Sin destroys relationships, human relationships. Sin destroys our relationship with God. And so sin is not a pretty thing. And we see this young man just kind of having this really not pretty experience. First for his father and then for himself. You know, Henry Nowen is another person that, who I, I just got into his book and, and in preparation for this series. And, and, and one of the things that he talked about is living in different places that he did. He said, I went on a search for any Semitic person, any Middle Eastern person, he says, from, from, I think he said, Lebanon to India. And he says, I went to these people and I just kept asking them, is, what, would, what would this story play out like in your culture in real life? And, and, and then questions were asked, asked what, would, what, 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 would, what would people think of this son who rejected his father and took his inheritance from his father? What, what, what would they think of him? And they said, oh, he would be, he would be disregarded. Nobody would respect him. Nobody would, they all would know that it's wrong. And then he says, well, what would happen to the son? And they said, oh, it's very obvious. He would be killed. It, the father would just say, you shame me and, and I'm going to... You're taking it from me. I'm gonna take your life. I mean, that's just that's just the response that he got asking that question over and over in cultures that would be similar to this culture. And so what you have is a player uh, being the younger son, and you have the plot being just a negative, negative plot. But then you also have this older son. And the older son seems like he should be a better story. He's the more dutiful son. He's, he's the more obedient son. He stays home. But really when you get beneath the kind of religious surface or the moralistic surface of this young man, you find out that he's just as distant from the father as the one who said, I want to go as far away from you as I can. This one stayed home, and he had no interest in being in a relationship with the father. Listen to what he said. I've labored. You can almost hear the duress. It was like, I can't believe I've actually done this. Why did I stay with you? I've worked. I've labored for you. You've never given me this. And the father contradicted him. He says, all that I have is yours. You've been eating from my table all this time. And, and if you didn't celebrate with your friends, maybe it's because you don't feel like celebrating. You know, religious uh, spirits and moralistic attitudes that we can get, they, they not only can ruin our lives, but they can ruin the lives of the people around us. We're always trying to achieve on our own. 
to be good enough, to perform well enough. And, and, and we become even proudful of ourselves, but jealous of others, envious of them, uh, arrogant against them. These are the attitudes that come in. And you can see this in the younger son. Not only did he not go look for his brother when his brother left, not only did he not try and talk his brother out of it, but when his brother came and returned, and the father saw that he was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. This, this arrogant, pompous, just non-relational guy, all he could do is just say, I'm not celebrating. I don't, I, and, 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 you know, I love this place where it says the father goes out to him and, and pleads with him, begs with him. Please come in and just rejects him. And so you've got this darkness in the heart of one son, but this darkness in the heart of another son. A joyless killjoy is the way I want to kind of remind myself to express it. You know, you know what it's like when you're like that. You, you don't have any joy in your relationship with God and you make everyone visible around you as well. Then you've got this third player, and we see the plot unfolding. It's the two sons, but then you have this father. And you've got this father acting like a father, and humanity never acts. Do we ever see good fathers act somewhat like this father? Yes, I believe we do. Human fathers. But never entirely. I, I, I grew up with an amazing dad, and some of you had an amazing dad, and you might look as a comparison and say, this is, the, this is the ideal of ideals, this is the supreme image of a generous father, of a father who loves extravagantly, a good, good father, a giving father, a forgiving father, a father, I mean, it's amazing that it says the father runs to his son, the father pleads with his other son, we see this just giving, 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 he gave to his son when he demanded wrongfully, and then when his son returned, he gave him even more, I love how the father interrupts the son with love. He doesn't interrupt him to say, I'm not interested in what you're saying. He interrupts him with the joy of his return into the fold, his return to the home. The, the son comes back with a prepared speech. He gets halfway through the speech, and immediately the father says, get the robe, get the ring, get the calf, bring, bring the sandals, all of these things. And I understand bringing the food, but I'm like, why the ring? Like, what, what is that about? Uh, I understand the clothing. I'm sure that this man had, you know, ripped, torn clothes. He was already uh, starving to death. Then he had to journey back a, a, a great distance. And I imagine he was filthy, you know, after being with the pigs. And then the journey, and, and, and a disheveled wasn't even the, the way of describing it. And, and he comes, and, and the father says, yes, uh, clothes are appropriate, food is appropriate, but sandals you could do without them. Ring you could definitely do without but when we have some expression of the Father saying, I'm such a giving Father, I can never stop giving. And it's not because of what you've done or you haven't done. It's just simply because I'm your dad and you're my son and you belong to me. When you're gone, something in the world is not right. And just I have to, I can't help myself. I just keep saying this about God. God can't help himself but love you. God can't help himself but forgive you. God can't help himself but run after you. This is a beautiful expression that God has of just giving, giving, constantly giving. I know sometimes when I talk about God giving, I say, well, what about those times that I feel like God's not hearing my prayers? Or God hasn't provided for me? Well, the great thing about being 55 on the way to 75 in the next 20 years, um, the great thing about being older now is that I realize that even in the times when my prayers were answered with a no or a wait, 
wasn't because God was unwilling to give to me. It was that God had a timing of when he wanted to give that to me. Or God had something better to give to me. He can't help but himself being a giving and a loving God. And so who, who really is the spendthrift? Who really is the extravagant one? Who's really the big time spender? The extravagant um, you know, the disseminator of, of luxury. Really, I see it. It's the father. I know that we can call the son the prodigal son. I get that. And I don't dispute it or argue with it at all. But I think there's another prodigal in this father, in this story. And it's the father. And he's more prodigal than the other one. You know what's interesting is that that son gave away an earthly fortune that, that just comes and goes. It seemed that this father's uh, uh, reservoir of gifts never ended. It just seemed like they were, for time immemorial, even eternal, that, that there was just no resource that was lacking in the, in, in, the, um, in the hands of the Father to give to His Son. You know, for Easter, I, I remember playing that amazing video of John Lennox, who uh, is a professor in Cambridge and, and, and a mathematician, world-renowned, and, and how he was debating uh, with Richard Dawkins, one of the three neo-atheists that are the most popular, well-known in, in, in the world, I guess. And, and one of them, Christopher Hitchens, is now gone um, from, from this earth. Um, the other two, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, remain. And I, I remember you know, hearing um, them not just arguing about the existence of God, but the nature of God when it comes to God's bounty, when it comes to God's extravagant love. And I, I couldn't believe my ears, but I literally heard them say, how dare God love me that much when I haven't even asked him to? Who does God think he is to be crucified on the cross for me when I don't feel the need for it, I don't have the desire to have that happen to him, and certainly not on my behalf? And you know, for my belief system, I'm like, you don't want to be saying that, you know? But I'm not out to argue with Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or any of the others. I just, I'm just impressed not so much by their rejection of God's love, but by the fact that even as they reject God with those same words, that God still loves them. That even though they didn't ask for it, I, I know this, I didn't ask for Jesus to die on the cross for me, and I've never in my life been an atheist. But I've been that second son, and I've been that first son. I've been in both suits. I've been in a place where I, I wanted something more than God. I wanted something other than God. What A relationship with God was not what mattered to me the most. I knew what it was to live in a distant land. I knew what it was to stay home in a comfortable religion, comfortable moralistic universe, and all of that, and think that I'm okay, and yet have it exposed to me that I'm just as distant from God as the one who is the notorious sinner. And, and, and I know what it's like, and I know, I know what it's like to experience the love of God, whether, whether I'm looking for it or not, whether I'm longing for it or not, looking for it, uh, asking for it, God loves me. And it's just an amazing picture that we have of the Father. And that's why we, 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 we don't contest at all with the title being the, the story of the prodigal son. But we want to go beyond that because really the, the main character in the story is not the, the younger son, nor is it the older son. And it's really the father. That's who this story is about. The purpose of this story is to show us the 
character of the father, the heart of the father. And that's why we're going to call it the parable of the prodigal father. And, and, and next week we'll, we'll talk about the scandal of God's love. And, um, but I want to talk about one other player in this, and that's the audience. These next two players are often overlooked when we see this story. Because sometimes when we hear the story for ourselves, we forget that there was an audience that was hearing that story. Jesus designed that story. Jesus placed it in history, into humanity, and in, in a way that we have to understand because that audience is a player in this story. And so when you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verse number 1 and verse uh, to verse the first part of verse number 3, and if you close your Bible, I do too, so uh, it opened easily for me, right, to the same page. I guess I had it over there for a while. But Luke chapter 15, verse number 1, talks about the audience. It says tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, for people who lived here at that time, those were synonymous terms. Okay? I don't know what you think about tax collectors today. The Jewish uh, people under Roman occupation and, and having Jewish people work for those Romans as tax collectors, they were the worst of the worst. They were betraying God, country, you know, neighbor, all of that. So they were put in the same category. Tax collectors and sinners were all crowding around to listen to Jesus. I just want to say this real quick. Jesus attracts crowds. You say, well, why aren't there crowds sometimes in church? Maybe because they're not preaching Jesus. That's all I'm saying, okay? And I just think that we need to recognize that for ourselves and for, for the rest of human experience. That if we're experiencing Jesus for who Jesus is, there are going to be people that are going to question, that are going to be gravitating, drawn to that message. And so we see that here, that tax collectors and sinners were all crowding around to listen to Jesus. That can be an encouragement to all of us in the way that we communicate Jesus to the world around us. But then look at verse number two. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses started grumbling. This man is friendly with sinners. He even eats with them. And then it says, then Jesus told them this story. And then he tells three successive stories. The third of which is the one that we're focusing on. The first one, uh, so a, a, a housewife, a mom, who, who lost the coin and who searched for it. And, and then the next one was a sheep, uh, out of 100 sheep, one, a shepherd uh, lost one and went and found it. And the end of those stories were the same. Coin found, sheep found, big time celebration. So you see the theme is very similar to the story that we're looking at. But notice that those three stories are told in, to an audience. And the audience are the sinners that are crowding around Jesus and the religious moralists around him who were critical not only of the crowd that was hanging around Jesus, but of Jesus himself for hanging around that crowd. And, and, and so Jesus tells this story. And you can begin to put the pieces together. Who does the younger son represent but those that crowd of sinners and tax collectors are around him, the notorious sinners? Who does that older son represent? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses who were grumbling. They were the ones who had no, they were, they were joyless and joy killers. They didn't want to celebrate whatsoever. And so Jesus is telling them this story. So I think for us to really get a hold of this story, we've got to know the players and how the plot unfolds by who the, what, what's happening with the players. First of all, the younger son, then the older son, the father, the audience, and then lastly, we have to consider the storyteller. And I believe that we can't really get a full hold of this beautiful story 
without thinking about who's telling the story. Don't just listen to the words of the story. Think about who's telling the story. Think about what you know of Jesus, his life, his love, his teachings, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his giving himself as a sacrifice, perfect, sinless sacrifice for the sins that we commit. Think about that's the one who's telling the story to us. The one who John chapter 1 verse 1 calls the word of God, the communication of God. God come in human form to fully express to us who God is. Jesus is here telling about his father. That's what amazes me. It's not just Jesus is telling about God. He's telling about his father. He's the one and only son of God. He's the one who was with for eternity with the Father. And he's coming back to say, let me pull back the curtain. Let me make sure that all of your human stuff and all of your religious stuff doesn't hide you from the full picture of what God's nature is, is really. And so God, Jesus pulls back and says, this is the Father that I know. And he's not just pulling back the, the curtain on an image of the Father that we had never known before like this. We knew of God. We loved God throughout Old Testament Scripture. God performed and did great things to draw us to Himself. But here was the was the, was the final act, of the, 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 just the full unveiling of the face of the Father. And, and and we got a revelation of the Father, but not just of Him, but of the Son that He was giving. Because remember that Jesus, who was telling the story, is the gift of the Father to you. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Son is Jesus and that Jesus is telling us this story about the Father. When we begin to see the players in the plot, we begin to understand the purpose. And to understand it maybe even in a, in a, 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 a way that's more full than what we're getting to right now, uh, I just want to compare this story to another prodigal son story. And it's from Buddhism. And it's actually sometimes called the Buddhist prodigal son story. And the, uh, the, uh, the, the literature is the Lotus Sutra, where this comes from, if you want to go ahead and look it up. But the story is told about a son who leaves home and he wanders and begs. And as he's wandering and begging and, and looking for food to sustain himself, he comes upon a very luxurious estate, very wealthy estate, and, and, it, and is introduced to the, to the landowner, to the, to, the, to the wealthy man, the rich man behind that. And as they're beginning to bring him to be introduced to the, to the landowner, he recognizes that the landowner is the father that he had left years before. So instead of being introduced to him, he just takes off running. And the father turns to his servant and says, run after him and bring him back here. The servant went after the son, caught up to him, brought him back to the father. And the father made him an employee. But he placed him at the lowest rung of a ladder, the lowest of jobs that he could possibly give to him 
is the job that he gave to him. And then he had no communication with him. He gave him a job on his land that would give him physical life, but relationship was not there. Days and days and weeks and months went, went by, and there was no communication whatsoever. Until one day the father walked up beside his son, and he just stood there while the son was with a shovel doing his laborious task for the day. And he just stood there without saying anything. And at that moment the son looked up to the father, and the father looked to the son, and they exchanged eye contact, they made eye contact, but there were still no words that were spoken about. And no one said anything about their relationship. And in fact, for all those years that the son worked for his father, no one knew that this was the son of the father. No one had any idea. The time came for the father to die. And on his deathbed, he made a surprise announcement. This lowliest of my servants is actually my son and the rightful heir to all of my possessions. And after that story is told, the moral of the story is given to us. And the moral of the story reads like this. So does the Buddha prepare us through disciplined labor for the great reward. You can't help but think about the difference between those two very similar stories in many ways but so profoundly different. And you can't help but have just kind of glare out at you what those differences are. But I would sum it up in one great difference, and that's the word grace. Amazing grace. A love of the Father for a son who is unworthy and recognizes himself as such. The Bible says that the son did not return to the father until he got so hungry that he felt he had no other choice. But somehow it says something else. It says that he came to his senses. You see, sometimes when we're so absent of God's love because of all the places that we've run to, we just recognize it's the Father that I need. It's his love that I need. And we come to our senses like the Son did. But even at that moment, we don't feel worthy of the Father's love. And feel, in fact, we feel less worthy than we ever have before. When we find ourselves in a pit of immorality, when we find ourselves in a pit of rebellion against God, we, we at that moment feel so unworthy. And, and you know what's interesting is the older son felt himself worthy, but proved himself also that we'd be unworthy. Both of them were the same. They, they didn't want relationship with their father. Even though the father longed to be in relationship with them, they rejected that relationship. Both of them were the same. They wanted the same thing. They simply wanted the father's money. It's just that one said, I want it now without working, and the other said, I'm at least willing to work for it. But that was not just something he was doing out of generosity. He was like, i got to earn it. i got to prove my worth. I can't experience grace and, and say that I'm loved even though I don't deserve to be loved. You see, sometimes the reason why we reject the love of God is because it's an affront to our pride. If we can't say that we deserve it, we don't want it. 
We say we have to earn it. We say that we have to be good enough and all those things. And we miss out on the Father who runs to us, who comes out of a party, away from all the people that are celebrating and pleads with us just to come home, uh, to come and be back in relationship. And so here we have two unworthy sons. But for both unworthy sons, we have the same thing. We have a father who runs, a father who begs. Fathers don't run, not in this case. Fathers don't beg, not in this case. They're too high in their position. They don't they experience that they're owed and all of that. And yet this one says it doesn't matter what you owe me. It just matters that you're in relationship with me and that I'm in relationship with you. And that's what the Father's all about. A grace that just says, you know, and you just look at this. I love where it says and he kisses him. And in that Greek expression in the original language there, it's, it's talking about how he continually was kissing him. And I want you to think that by now this son really stank. He was, he, he, he was smelled, he was dirty, and the father didn't worry about that. He just kept kissing him and kissing him and embracing him and holding him. Why? Because he didn't care about the filth of the son. He just cared about the son. And that's grace. It's loving those who don't deserve, myself included. Loving those who have rejected. Loving those who don't appreciate enough. Loving those who are looking for something else to fulfill their desires. All of those things. And yet here's the heart of the Father. To run to us. To come and beg our presence. To kiss us. Our filthy face. To offer us complete forgiveness. You see, it wasn't enough for him to say, just give him a robe and give him food. He said, give him a ring. And the ring signifies you're back in the family. You're back in the inheritance. You're the representative of this family. You know, sometimes if we fail God, we think we can never represent God again. We can never witness again or preach again or tell somebody about God because we failed him so miserably. And yet the Father that's talked about in this story by the Lord Jesus, no one else could have told us about God in this way. Nobody else could have come up. Who thinks of this kind of a Father except for the one who's been with the eternal Heavenly Father? And he's coming to us and he's saying, look, it's not just enough for me to forgive you. That's awesome. But I want to restore you. I want to re-adopt you into my family. I want you to bear my name. I want you to sit at my table. I want you to wear the robe of son, not the peasant uh, robes of a, of, a, of a servant. I don't want you to walk around barefoot like my servants. I want you to have shoes to say that you belong into this place. And it's an amazing expression. And here we sometimes say, you know, I love that there's that revelation of God, but I somehow feel more comfortable with the Buddhist revelation. I somehow feel more comfortable with that more pragmatic father who comes and says, you know what? I see you return, but you know what? you got to work for it. And maybe at the end, not through relationship, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of your material needs, but it will never be about relationship with us. But Jesus, the one who tells the story, and by the way, I want to ask you this. Could there be any more clear and potent, powerful picture of a God who runs to us than Jesus, who ran down from heaven to live among us, to take on our human flesh, to be tempted in every way like we are, and yet remain without sin, so at the end of it all, he can take the punishment that is rightfully ours because of our sins against God, and take it all. All of the injustice, all of the mockery, all of the ridicule, all of the racism, all of the classism, all of that was being thrown against Jesus. 
all the rejection of friends, the loneliness, the separation from his father for the first time in all of, of eternity, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That break, that fissure in that relationship where somehow, someway, Jesus, who became human, but was still fully 100% God, was able to take the full penalty of our sin, the temporal penalty, the eternal penalty, everything, separation from God. He took it all upon himself in one cosmic moment. He took it all upon himself. What greater revelation do we have of a God who runs to us than Jesus going to the cross, Jesus rising from the dead? What screams the love of God more clearly than this? What cries out, I love you, I'm going to pursue you. I can't live without you and I'm willing to die to prove it. I just have to have you in my house. I have to have you in a relationship with me. What an amazing, amazing story of grace. And we find out that grace is happy. There's a celebration. There's a party. When you know grace, you have joy. In fact, grace is joyful inherently. When you know the grace of God, you can't, have, you can't help yourself. But to have joy, abiding joy, that the world can't explain to you, but the world can't take it away. And so I want to just say this to you. The story of knowing the Father has an impact in your life where you come home. Has it impacted your life where you can't stay away from home? Where you can't have enough of the Father? I have two stories about the Father I just want to share. And I'll do it in like a minute or two. Sixty years old, I was a rebel. I saw my dad at age 12 be healed of an incurable disease. I saw miracles. I saw transformations. I saw racism be cured, marriages be cured, that in society were not happening at all. And yet, when Jesus changed hearts and lives, I saw the transformation. I saw it. And yet, I lived among people that were not connected with God, not really about God. And I, and I just made a decision. I'd rather be accepted by people than in the house of the Father. And I just went, and I just did whatever I thought to do to be accepted by them. And at the end of the year, I traveled with my dad like I did every summer. And... And he asked me to do what I did every summer. He'd say, he'd say, Dave, just like we're asking other young people to kind of share their story, now's your time to share your story. And he expected me to say, you know, I'm loving God and God's loving me because I see a lot of times rebels, they, they go to distant countries, they keep things hidden. And my dad really didn't know, but I stood up before 300 or so kids at that time and I said, I'm a hypocrite. My dad doesn't even know this, but I'm not living for God. And I'm out doing stuff that I shouldn't be doing. I'm, and I just, I, I'm sorry. And I just fell on my knees. I turned around and turned around to, to facing them. And I fell on my knees. And something amazing happened. Actually, two things amazing happened. But I fell on my knees and I started to pray to God. I felt his arms again. I felt his walk. I felt his acceptance. I didn't expect it. You say, well, that's just an emotional thing. You conjured it up and things like that. You have to know. I've had other miracles that can only be explained as miracles by scientists and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm just saying that, that, that psychologically, I had no expectation of being accepted. Not any. And I just knew at that moment that God still loved me. And He cared about me. And He knew me before I was born. And He was never going to stop loving me. And all the embarrassment, all the lies, and all the shame, was all of that. He just loved me. That was the first great thing. 
for me personally, but the second thing was I started to not just hear God's response, but I started to hear people around me. And I, I, I was so like startled and I opened up my eyes and I looked around and, and I think probably every one of those 300 kids were down at the altar with me. And all of them were praying and just recognizing that they had to come home before God and come home with the Father. And I don't know how far distant they were. Some of them might have been close or maybe we brought even closer. I don't know. But we were all having a time. We all thought about the same thing. And throughout that week at that camp, there was such love. There was such joy. There was such celebration. And it wasn't just because we were a bunch of kids that were trying to date the girl of life or trying to, you know, go out and play sports or whatever. It was because God had come among us and sent to us and he loves us and he runs to us no matter what we've done. And it was an amazing thing. But I want to tell you that no matter how profound that was, it's been in the last three years that I've come to know the Father in a way that I'm, I want more. I've come to know the Father so much like through the teachings of of, of deeper life and sitting in that class and hearing about God's name, the Abba. And how Jesus taught the, the, the story of this is the way you should pray, our Father in heaven. And he used that name, Abba, which in a Semitic uh, culture is the catch-all phrase for God. It's the adult father. But it's also the little baby's daddy. It's Papa. It's all of those things. That just more and more I've come to know God as Dad. I've come to know as Papa. I'm coming home, and I just want to know more, because there's still some times I walk down the street, and my mind is off of him, and I'm consumed with other things, and I say, Father, bring me home again. God, let me, let me, let me be in your presence, and I, I know I haven't arrived, and I know that I'm on this journey more, recognizing more and more that no matter what I'm concerned about, no matter what failures in my life, and you know what I'm finding? That the more I realize how much he loves me, the more I realize how much he loves you. And then failures and disappointments among people don't bother me like they used to. It's like, okay, that you're a candidate for the love of Father. You're somebody who, who, who feels wayward. You feel shame and all that. And that's just an opportunity for God to show you how much he loves you. So I'm going to say in closing, what is your impression of God as revealed by Jesus in this story? Would you just personalize it for yourself? What is your impression of God as revealed by Jesus in this story? And now if you can just go back to that exercise that we did in the beginning. Now, after hearing more and more of this story, and we'll do even more as the weeks progress, now remind yourself to ask that question, what does God's house look like now? What, what do I see? Where do I see God in his house now? What do I see God doing in his house now? Is it different now that we've got more revelation? Does where, where God is in this house and what God is doing in this house look different to us? And are we now in a different place? Are we now in a different posture with the Father? Are we experiencing something different with Him? Are we in a different place doing a different activity with Him? Uh, the more that we receive this kind of revelation. And I just want to ask you again, have you received Jesus as the one who seeks and saves the lost, who, who demonstrates to us how a father loves and would give his one and only son to be sacrificed on the cross for us. And you know, it's through Jesus. I'm, I'm just going to get politically incorrect right now. You don't have any 
revelation of God in any other religion or philosophy, any other moralistic code. I don't care where I've read a, a ton of them, from ancient to modern. I've, I've read so much of the different literature and all. I'm telling you right now, do your own research. You will not find a revelation of God like this revelation. So we have to ask, have you received Jesus as the one who seeks and saves the lost? As the one who goes to find that one who's been displaced by the circumstances of life or by their own decisions. And I just want to encourage you that if you invite Jesus into your life, I promise you, you will know the Father. And He will place His Spirit in your life. And you, through Jesus, will be in relationship with God. A celebratory relationship. A rejoicing relationship. Both now and forever. Alright, worship team. I love you guys. I'm not sure if I let me say this. We have a ministry team ready just like we do on Sunday after the message to um to be here to pray with you. And I want to, I want them just to take maybe like the first verse or two of this song before they come up. Normally they come up right away when the music starts. I just want us all just to worship the Father and receive the Father's love for ourselves. And so worship team, as you're worshiping, I, I appreciate that you're leading us, but just feel free to be lost in your own worship. I think you do that well anyway. I'm not telling you. I'm kind of preaching the choir, literally. But uh, just feel free to get lost in worship. We're singing that song, oh, what is it, never ending, miraculous love of God. I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it. Yeah. Still gives it away. He loves Richard Dawkins, he loves Sam Harris, he loves you. Loves those that don't have it figured out, those who think they have it figured out. I just want you to feel free just to get lost in, in worship this morning. And then maybe after the first or second verse, when you see ministry team members come up to the front, those who are on schedule for this morning to be a part of our ministry team. And, and by the way, if you don't know how to be a part of ministry team or worship team or children's ministry or anything like that, you need to come to your life in Embassy Churches every day. Kind of quick plug, you know, one to three. Go ahead and do that. In fact, lunch will start as soon as you say amen in the chapel. You can just go over and start having lunch. By the way, if you're not going to your life at Embassy Church, please don't come and eat lunch from the people who are We have enough those. And then if you feel deprived, just come back the first Sunday of every month and we have a big meal with everybody and we invite everyone to come. But I just want to encourage you, if you've never become a member of NBC Church, you're welcome to do that. And the great thing is, we, we don't need you to, if we don't even want you to, if God has another church home for you, it's God's going to decide, He loves us, He's going to put us where He wants us to be. But if this is the right home for you, we welcome you to come and even enter a membership and ministry, and we invite you to be with us from one to three. that thought. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your love, and I just pray that we would get lost again in your love. 
And I just pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that it would just, not just be when the music is playing, that it would be later on today, tomorrow morning, that we would have moments privately, personally, with family members, friends, family groups, whatever, whatever we're with, church family groups, etc. Lord, please let us be in a place of revelation of your love, God, that's ongoing in our lives and life transforming in our lives. We pray this for every single person here. And Lord, if there's anyone who, who really doesn't have a relationship with you, but they know that, that they came by the invitation of God's Spirit and, and, and they've been drawn to this place by you, Father. I just pray that nobody would leave this place without saying, God, I want you in my life. And, 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 I, and I thank you for the cross of Jesus that takes my sins away and I receive your forgiveness. And I ask you for your welcome home. Father, I pray, Lord, for those who have never come into a relationship with you, that they would come into that relationship today, but also for those of us who have come, that we would come more into your love and honor in this moment. In Jesus' name, God. In Jesus' name. I'm going to say one more thing before we just get lost in worship, and it's for those who are just starting a relationship with God. We have a book in the Hospitality Center called What's Next for You and God. Please. Don't leave without that book. There's a free gift from us that will help you in your relationship with God and your beautiful journey that maybe is just beginning today. So let's go ahead and stand together and feel free to worship. And, and then uh, you see the ministry team come. If you want to be prayed for, go ahead and be prayed for. As soon as you want to begin to transition, those of you are going to you, your life at Embassy Church, feel free to head over to, the, to the, your right and my left and that those doors in the chapel. Thank you. God bless you.